No index, no, no one, index, no all. No index, no Coming up, coming up, coming up. W E L O V.
check can be stopped by accident when you're tripping the wire of the pole. I am starting from a number of premises in presenting these remarks to you here tonight. Uh, the first of these premises has to do with the fact that we live in an increasingly visual world. This is the first episode of No Index. Yes. We've tried to do this about ten times, but we keep fucking up. We keep recording this. Um, we're turning mics off. <laughs> we're deleting files. We are. We yeah, are not producers. Of, we're bad at of this. Radio. Maybe this this might not even make the cut. But this might not even be. <laughs> this, it's probably going to be the next take of this. That will be the one. <laughs> but we're getting there. We're we're like we're learning. Yeah. This is a new radio show. Imagine we were live on radio though. We'd be um, we'd be coming in hot. Yeah. Everyone. One of us keeps switching off our mics. Like. It's and one of us is both of us, actually. <laughs> yeah, both of us have done it. It's true. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so we're here. It's, it's, we're here. It's our new radio show. We've been talking about doing this for a long time. We've been like WhatsApp. It, I think this radio started it through WhatsApp. We were like texting each other. Yeah. Um, that was that when I was I became like a news bot on uh, Instagram. And yeah, you you, you kind of like lost the plot for a while and just. <laughs> Like, I got a lot of are you okay? <laughs> you just kept like sharing like <laughs> graphs and like sharing your sharing graphs. Like when my stories were so frequent that they were basically just tiny pixels. Like little dots. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like swipe through two and then move on to that like is my mood. dog. Oh, yeah, I saw how many people left. I yeah, saw, the like, drop off of rate was high. Yeah. Um But yeah, I guess we, we were like exchanging a lot about different different like Yeah. I think we were just trying to figure out what we're, what are we doing. We're trying to make sense of the world, like yeah. everyone else, I guess. And we were thinking a lot about culture and where that intersected with like politics and economics. And our eyes were burning from uh, image uh, oversaturation, yeah. overstimulation. Just becoming more and more like into our digital selves. Yeah, bleary-eyed. Like av- basically avatars. Digital sloths. Yeah, and so now we've come out the other end. I feel healthier. Um, we have this radio show. Do you actually feel healthier? Yeah, I feel way better. I've been doing like 20k walks every day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not 20k, sorry, sorry 20,000 yeah, steps. Speaking of different. hot, walking is hot, right? Yeah, now. walking is trendy. I've said it. <laughs> the set it. The said Guardian it. wrote an article about it. <laughs> yeah, some fashion magazine quoted me on that. Um, <laughs> so, should we tell people what this show like is what yeah is, we wrote a manifesto that? but it sounds a little bit teenage so maybe we just say it in, you, uh, you actually wrote it <laughs> i think it's really well written actually i mean maybe it'll i can't take any credit form. for it. maybe it's just my performance of it maybe we just need a child to read it actually that would be fitting this is the first episode of no index a radio show and research project hosted in an experimental form by clayton and amar they'd like to predicate their efforts with the sentiment that images are dead as a result, they started No Index to dig graves for these dead images and resurrect them into an alternative communication that replaces our screens with speakers and uses sound to see a new image. An image dislocated from commerce, an image that makes real life tangible, beginningless and endless, an image with no index, an image as a zero and never as a one, no index, no one, no all. Um, no, yeah. So we got we have like a an agenda, I guess, for what this like research radio yeah, deep state agenda. <laughs> There's an agenda. Um, yeah, I mean, what? How would you articulate it, Clayton? Uh, um, 
I guess we we keep saying we want to. This our our really juicy logline is that we're going to definancialize the visual language. I think it's yeah. It's uh that's a very like sexy logline, isn't it? And I think it um it's very like red beret and <laughs> pin on lapel type of thing. Yeah. But you know, hey, we can start there, and then we'll see where we end up. But yeah, I guess what we're saying is that the structure of uh, visual culture has been built upon a hyper capitalistic point of view. Yeah, and you, um, we were kind of observing how, um, like all of the different aspects of culture, like visual culture especially. So like from like fashion, like sort of like fashion and like advertising through to like our cinema um, and visual arts and also like social media and user generated content all all sort of like come through these like big big media like these like like television networks franchise cinemas like big social media platforms Netflix exactly Um, so like the media gauntlets the media gauntlets that like kind of mediate they like finance they produce um and they distribute and exhibit yeah um, i mean you know legend is that netflix shows up on set with a clipboard and all their metrics and then they start checking boxes for colors for all types of things like what cats like it's like algorithm films isn't it it's like equivalent to how have you seen how like deliveroo do um like black kitchen stuff where they create like a fake restaurant they'll basically be like okay people in richmond like love this chinese restaurant and they'll put a shed in the car park and then they'll just yeah and they'll like copy all the dishes and then they'll make you like the perfect like chinese restaurant i mean that is basically netflix 100 percent. yeah exactly that's like (laughs) netflix every like new series on netflix is like reading people it's like the feedback loop of like seeing what people are people respond to and like and binge and then just creating more of that and it all looks the same in the sense of every dp it could be the same dp shooting every one of those things for the most part um they're all really almost edited the same they have the same color correct almost across the board so i mean and the same like structure like like story structure yeah. narrative structure and the other part of the devil's bargain is that they fuck you over as the creators of that content by doing all uh, full buyouts often so that you you as the creator don't really own any of the rights to that after they give you that one sweet check that's what Michaela Cole was talking about in that yeah that's why she told them to New York Magazine to stuff it yeah that was cool she um, just turned that down yeah I mean you know not everybody has the uh ability to turn it down um but i think more people do than don't so some of this you should have just drank the water straight into the microphone asmr yeah well we don't we wouldn't need a foley artist to come in (laughs) we need a foley artist on the next i want to see like some dude we should have a foley performance like a barbarian sound studio kind of guy that just comes in like some really (laughs) old weird dude (laughs) with a saw and a water bucket yeah or like a melon and like a like a claw hammer (laughs) (laughs) open call to any uh wandering foley artists that want to do a performance for us yeah it'd be nice to get like a young foley artist wouldn't it Somebody who's able to do things like, you know, on the fly. Mm-hmm. Like instant sound design. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, but we, yeah. we digress. But The Devil's Bargain of Netflix and, and Netflix just being one example of like, I think you can look 
basically everywhere it, where you where you're like where you where you experience images um and see a kind of similar pattern yeah. what, what's happened is all of the like production of the these images has this this like neoliberal logic uh which essentially favors like competition over collaboration exploitation efficiency like crucially it's like what is the most efficient way of doing something um and which this, creates profit which creates to create profit yeah. and surplus value um and like also the citizen or the viewer as a consumer um yeah. not an audience um exactly i think like also too on the you know the to further that conversation as well for uh what does it mean for the people who make the films to own the means of production does that then change that um that need for profitability or does it even just narrow the margin of profitability that's required in order to just break even on things or um you know so on i think anytime getting certain producers which is the majority of them involved into a project then it's about how much money can it make maximizing profit not just breaking even and i think in that in that particular scenario then obviously we're in these situations like netflix and so many other places where it's like okay how do we really get the most eyeballs on things um but like if filmmakers who uh support each other are producing each other's films does that then change you know how much money we really need to make off of this does it become enough for us to just make a living and then do our images become something different in, by proxy and maybe that's a way forward yeah, I think wondering a lot of those questions and then trying to answer them, uh, I don't know, over the course of however many episodes we end up doing. But I think some, some of this is also dislocating the image from sound and using sound in a way that we can create a picture in your mind so that we can start to see things uh, from our own imagination rather than have them be delivered to us through our phones through our screens through cinemas and so on yeah i think i think like no index is its ambition is to like expose the condition that visual image is in um visual culture and images in yeah um this like quite deathly like deathbed like, yeah um yeah we w we would like to declare the image dead on arrival Yes. <laughs> That's like the hyperbolic kind of statement where, or like point of observation we're making. Like the image is essentially been so butchered by like all of these, like sh like the, the economic structure that, that like produces and distributes it, that um, it's been emptied of any like authentic or radical emancipatory like qualities that it may have had in say the era of like I don't know, like state cinema or state production. Well, I think it's because images have become so laden as archetypes with um, an ulterior motive, which is to get you to separate from your money. Um, I think to explain why we played the Gravediggers in the beginning of this, not just because they were a uh, rap group that was exploring the language of horror movies and using audio to uh, paint pictures of horror movies in your head Fuquan the gatekeeper also said to explain the grave diggers it was derived from digging graves for the mentally dead and stood for resurrecting the dead from their state of unawareness and ignorance so maybe 
that's kind of what we're thinking in that, where we'd like to resurrect the image from its dead on arrival status that uh, it seems to be in. Yeah, that's that's a nice metaphor for you know the the condition we find the image in and the like journey we're trying to go with this show in terms of seeking to like create a new visual language or a new like re- like a resurrection of the image but also i i think isn't it it's so boring like the idea of of watching things now like you almost just want to watch less and less challenging things because it feels as if it's all it's all like kind of exhausting anyway yeah my favorite thing to do is like put on something and then just doom scroll (laughs) (laughs) yeah and not even watch it and not even watch it (laughs) yeah because i'm so sort of like burnt out by well it's just it's just that obviously we're you know we are like agenda with this radio show is to talk about visual image and it's kind of interesting that we're using like sound and conversation like audio as a way of doing that um and that's like intentional yeah uh, it's intentional to um, dismember the image from the sound. So we're going to play a lot of clips of things that you won't be able to see, but you'll be able to hear. And then if you've seen the things that we're playing, you can imagine what you've already seen. But also, wouldn't it be interesting to imagine things that you haven't seen yet, just based on the sound that you're listening to? Um, so I think yeah. that will take shape in many ways. That'll be readings of, uh, you know, different passages from different things. That'll be poems being read aloud. That'll be soundscapes taken from other films. Some films that um, guests have made that we'll talk to that will be with us. Um, like archive recordings, like archive interviews, recordings. Um, and even spanning into things like, like readings of recipes and like cooking and... Um, it's basically like an ASMR. Yeah, like audio ephemera. Um, and it's it's like... It's like porn tube for ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, or, wait, you can't talk about that either because you're down with Pornhub too, right? Uh, no, they've never funded me. <laughs> not, that I, not that I haven't tried to pitch them. Um but they're evil, I guess. So it's probably... It's yeah, probably, they are evil now, right? They're super evil. Um, but we should do a whole thing on porn, actually. Yeah. I mean, that's not a surprise to hear that Pornhub is um, questionable. Just back to, like, I guess using... Well, back to using people in a sense, though, too, right? And so in the parallels between pornography, filmmaking, um, music, and the creation of culture and content the uh, person making it is often being used by these massive conglomerates in order to uh, make profit for them. And so um, that's, you know, a lot of what is we have a problem with in general. Mm-hmm. Not just us, but other people that are listening probably have a problem with that too. This is a good opportunity to play the next clip with Kathy Acker. Um, that is, she discusses the concept of, of use and being used and um, I think I think we've all felt used before. Should we hit it? Should we hit it? Cute. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about Clinton's like trauma <laughs> later. <laughs> we are all being used. I get used by Grove Press. I get used by I, if I went through how I've been used. I mean, I don't think you can make money in this country and not be used. We, I don't know, you know what to call it. Let's call it post-capitalism for the moment. 
but you know we live in a very unpleasant economic system where we get eaten so we can make money and we use ourselves anyone who's in the public has an image and anyone who has an image or has to deal publicly is in a use situation and it's partly using you know that dead pan dead fish thing of william the old that that's a use you know that's inhuman that's ugly right people do that he's got to protect himself right i mean that's the thing we all have to figure out how to live in a society which is not comfortable for human life in which the imagination is relegated to the dustbin you know and the imagination is all that is like the soul and dreams and emotions and everything else and we've got to figure out how to live in this society you know where money's god and not even money you know look at money isn't anything you know that's Baudrillard's black hole we're used that's um, how you find me on X hamsters Baudrillard <laughs> that's your like top search your top search is hyper reality <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's interesting that this clip is recorded in um, it's an interview she gave in 1997 which is actually the year that she passed away um, so it's I actually actually even know that she was gone yeah she's she um, died at the age of 50 so she's she died pretty young um, and then you know like experienced like a lot of sort of fame and acclaim in New York and then London when she moved to London and then in recent years like the last couple of years she's been sort of like re like had a sort of renaissance in interest um, and like Chris Krause, who was a contemporary of hers, wrote like her biography and she had like a exhibition at the ICA. But anyway, this is like, um, so this would have been, I guess, one of the like, like last interviews she gave or like yeah. one in the year that she died anyway. And it's interesting because 1997 like is, is a while ago. And if we've only, if she's talking about anyone in the public, anyone being in the public and their image being in the public is in a youth situation, it's, it's only like sort of accelerated now to the point where you don't just have to be a celebrity for that to be the case. Like, yeah. you know, anyone with a social media account is kind of in a use situation um, because your, your image is like, if you, if you want it to be, is like public. Um, I guess so. I mean, in a way, we kind of live in this like kind of business fascism that's linked to images. Like a techno fascism. So there's a, a, a Byung-Hul Chan quote that I think explains a lot. It says, shit storms occur for many reasons. They arise in a culture where respect is lacking and indiscretion prevails. The shit storm represents an authentic phenomena of digital communication. Sovereign is he who commands the shit storms of the net. Um, so I, I think there's a, a, obviously Trump is a certain master of chaos and being able to create a shit storm that basically um, deafens everyone to a point of not giving a shit about anything um but i think that's also rooted in like a, a certain media business demand culture which is a matter of uh constantly producing image after image film after film video after video article after article so all of this stuff becomes useless after a while because there's just too much of it to read in the first place um kind of like the you know the concept of uh, CMO inflation and so on. Yeah, it's like um, I have written here. Like, it's 
information capitalism is another way of thinking right. about it. Like it thrives off compressed attention spans on impression rather than immersion on intensity rather than contemplation on previews rather than screenings which is like that spotify dickhead's whole mm -hmm. uh presentation which is telling musicians to work harder yeah he was like just start recording an album every year instead of every two years or every six months and he he was just more basically like yeah. double down yeah and trump is just a symptom of that Right. Like he's just someone that plays the game right well, and I think like he's also he's completely um, devoid of any uh, poetic nuance in all presentation of his ideas. So I think like in that crude way of just presenting information, I think he's stricken all you know poetic uh, verbiage and rhythm out of what he does in his his daily existence and presentation to the public yeah the, the best articulation of that i've seen recently is trump when he was on all those drugs just being like space force <laughs> vote trump <laughs> second amendment vote trump and it's like what could be yeah be it, it, it it's the most like meaningless bullshit yeah but it also it actually does works. have meaning though too yeah. yeah it has impact and works which is a symptom of like the fact that that works is a is a symptom of like information capitalism and the kind of ways that communication and like how we communicate meaning has been reduced and yeah we've um, been keyworded to death basically like everything is is basically whatever is a representation of something yeah it's like the phenomenon of people not reading articles anymore they just read the headlines yeah. but it's almost like trump actually makes that baudrillard point because he is always he's like denounced fake news in the media so yeah. much he's like the news is manipulating i mean you. he is baudrillard's black hole and then he is yeah exactly he's literally taken it so far that he is basically being like that representation his representation of the media and the way that it's representing everything is to like dismiss it and make him his own representations the truth yeah um, i mean it's a real con man's perspective on things and i think that's like that goes back to the origins of capitalism as well as like our realities are what are what we create you know yeah. and, and in that um he has mastered this like really deep nihilistic view of uh nothing exists that i don't define and i mean man we're living in it now yeah which is which is kind of the logic of most media like when you're watching the news on say a war something bojar talks about like you know you're not actually at the war like you're that you're, you're getting a warped reality of it you're getting yeah. what the how that how that like news media presents it to you and he's just tapping he's just shaping and distorting the yeah. crowd he's, he's editing the um the text really exactly at all times it's like when the other day they were like in his town hall address he was like they were like will you like denounce QAnon and he's like I don't know what QAnon is. All I know is they're against pedophilia. <laughs> and then like, was it, but no, the best part of that was the retweet tweet aspect. He's like, it's oh. a retweet. It's a retweet. <laughs> what did he retweet? Like some conspiracy theory. The QAnon shit. But he's basically oh, yeah. like, I didn't write it. I yeah. retweeted it. Yeah. He's and like, because I retweeted it. 
I didn't write it. He's like, listen, honey. <laughs> you know what a retweet is. Yeah, do you know what a retweet is? It, it's, it's not me. I'm just putting it out there. People can make. He was like, I'm putting it out there. People can make their own decisions about it. And she was like, are you not like supporting it by retweeting? Yeah. I mean, there um, is something that's so fucked up about like the circuitous logic that's always at the root of his his uh, rationalizing that you do feel like at times that it's some weird new philosophy that he actually is brilliant for having created. Uh, it's disgusting and awful, but you can just see him warping circles into these weird things that now people just think that way. And exactly. you could read a, someone could actually illustrate that fully in, uh, in a very well-written book and get deliver all the exact same points but he just he just brutalizes language in the most like fucking dumb and ridiculous ways that were left with him just being like i mean yeah what's a retweet and you're like yeah i mean what is a retweet (laughs) um maybe i was just retweeting it because i was like wow this is crazy yeah and i just retweeted it it's yeah exactly it's it he's just re, he's just redefines things as he wishes yeah um, i mean maybe that is really his logic he's just like why do i have to provide context but yeah i mean he's just yeah it's just a, a complete reduction of language but that has created like its own like alternative reality um that the followers of are you know being used for his agenda so they want to live in that world. And I guess like in a, to a certain extent, if you really never leave your house and never get out from in front of your television and you only watch the channel that he's on, yeah, that is your reality. Yeah, and he just represents, he's the most extreme version of something that's happening generally where like, you know, before it would be like, if you lived in the UK, you'd just get your media from BBC News. It'd be like you watch a television broadcast and you get this very like state, like sanctioned, like, version of what yeah. the news is but now it's like you can just be in your weird like reddit subhole yeah um and be like a QAnon like incel or you can like be listening to trump or you can be like getting like some strange like mix of some diet of like left magazines or whatever like you you can just totally create your own reality based on what media you consume yeah um and you can just live in a dumpster fire of fake shit yeah ever what's this kind of post-truth thing that like Baudrillard is kind of like if you if everything is like a representation of something then you move so far away from any like sense of reality and we are just we've just been accelerating towards that yeah it's like the kind of the semiotics of of all this stuff i guess that's the thing too that we've kind of reached the heightened state of that now and uh, in 2020 with all that's happened now like all things are almost semiotic um, and a symbol of what used to exist in more three-dimensional settings now we're reduced to like the memories of things that we used to do and like the feelings that we used to have when we would go out to clubs dancing even watching people on tv without masks it's kind of like strangely uh visceral where you imagine yourself being that close to someone and you're like, whoa, Mm. that's like, that's very intense. Mm. So like it's, yeah, I think we're in a really strange potential juncture of Mm -hmm. what could go wildly wrong. There's so much simulation, like simulation and sort of like our digital selves have got so much value now that it will be at the mercy of companies speculating on us as commodities for now the foreseeable future um, until we emotionally and uh, 
mentally disinvest from platforms like Instagram and so on, which I don't think there's any chance of that happening anytime soon. Um, you know, we're going to be models that are going to be bought, sold, and traded to the highest bidders for the most ulterior of motives. Yeah, just like the way your data like is sort of used for advertising on social media platforms, so is your image. Um, your image is basically up for grabs, um, and I guess I guess the next, but not just your image, your profile of who you are, like right. the whole everything that's laden around that image, all your behaviors and all the things that you like and all the places you go, all of that's collected into a file that someone can give to someone else. It's like an audience persona that is then just like sold. But you know, I I have in a lot of the research I've been doing for work like over the past few years, I've been really interested just in anonymity in general and whether we need to be uh, represented on the internet period or represented outside of or in a in a two-dimensional space at all whether that's photography film uh instagram and so on and i do wonder like if we start to just mobilize a, a view of the world of becoming more anonymous online does that then start to kind of uh dismantle the system a little bit you know because then they don't really know who they're tracking and they can't with full confidence uh make profiles around us and, and use that. Yeah, I think another way of looking at that is like, are we different people when we're online? And like, yeah, your how reliable is that? Yeah, what's your digital self like versus your, like, can you be a different character? But that is still something, you know, if you are, I feel like, I don't know, you have to like curate and edit a kind of version of yourself when you're online. That means you are, you are a different digital self, but that's still like commodifiable. So yeah, maybe anonymity is like... But also does that become, I guess, I guess the thing that's like disturbing about that potentially is that as you engage with that more in a real sense, they do know who you are. They do know all these things about you. Um, and then they start to tailor things to you and they start to shape who you are. Does that digital self become the real you? Yeah. More than it is. Well, you're both of those things, aren't you? You're like, yeah. you're dig and given that we're like so digital, you're probably more, I'm probably more my digital self than my physical self these days. Yeah. Like, do you become ketchup to the tomato where you're the boiled down essence of tomato? The egg to the chicken. Yeah. The memory of a tomato, you know? Yeah. The concept of the value of a digital body is an interesting place to introduce the piece that Sandra Perry made for um yeah so this is like um we're gonna play this is actually a video piece but we're gonna just play the audio from it um we have permission to do that yeah nice yeah, yeah. well done checked with um checked with to be legit yeah i checked with electronic arts intermix who um look after this piece of work by sandra perry who's a great artist um a tremendous artist as trump would say um <laughs> sorry <laughs> You um, couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Um, but no, this is, we, we've like, this is the sound from, like an extract from this like one channel video installation called It's In The Game 17, which is basically about her brother, Sandy Perry, her twin brother, who was a basketball player at like university in the States. And without him like being compensated or his consent or his knowing his like, like physical 
body and his likeness was uh, used in a video game um, by like EA Sports and with the sort of like mediated by NCAA, which is like a it's the college sports college uh, body right association. So I mean, I think I think that's like perfectly links just to the concept of what the NCAA actually is. It's very uh, exploitive in its model of taking human beings and owning them for the four years that they are going to school in exchange for an education. Um, Athletes aren't paid. um, They're not allowed to have sponsorship deals. They're basically there only getting the scholarship and then not able to do anything outside of that. Most won't have any time to work jobs, etc. But it becomes even more deeply cynical to make a video game that is um, with college athletes in order to make more money for the schools, which are like, you know, multi-million dollar schools, each of them. Collectively, the industry itself is like a billion dollar industry of college sports with TV rights and so on. And so for that extent to extend into a place where they're literally making uh, digital representations of players and then making video games, selling those video games and making money off of that. And then not getting, not just not getting the permission, but then also not sharing any of the revenue. But also this is like, has a whole other quality to it because it's a video game. It's like technology and it's not only taking someone's body, but also making it do stuff and like move. And um, yeah, so the, the kind of, the kind of throwing like tech into the equation, um, also brings about like not only can people use your image but they can make it they can make it do stuff Object type. Figure. Museum number OC 1869-1005.1. Title. Object. Hoa Hakanhanahe. Lost or stolen friend. Moai. Ancestor figure. Description. Ancestor figure Moai, called Hoa Hakanhanahe. Hidden or stolen friend. Made of basalt. Images related to the Birdman religion, Tangata Manu, birds, vulvas, dance paddles in the form of stylized human figure, a ring and a girdle design, are carved in relief on the back of the figure's head and body. Ethnic name, made by Rapa Nui. Date, 1000 to 1200 approximate. Acquisition notes from Wikipedia. Hoa Hakanhanahe is a Moai or Easter Island statue housed in the British Museum in London. It was taken from Orongo, Rapa Nui, Easter Island, in November 1868 by the crew of the British ship HMS Topes and arrived in England in August 1869. Though relatively small, it is considered to be typical of the island's statue form, but distributed by carvings added to the back, associated with the island birdman cult. It has been described as a masterpiece, without a doubt the finest example of Easter Island sculpture. Acquisition Notes from the British Museum Collected during the HMS Topes expedition to Rapa Nui, captained by Powell in 1868 and presented to Queen Victoria by the Lords of the Admiralty. She then gifted it to the British Museum in 1869. 
Acquisition name. Donated by Lords of Admiralty. Donated by Queen Victoria. Field collection by Comrade Richard Ashmore Powell. Acquisition date 1869. British Museum Collection Online. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash G-O-O dot G-L forward slash O-G-O-2-5-L. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about the way that that was presented was that it was uh, like all chroma walled, you know, so everything was uh, blue walled. Oh, uh, she uses this like specific pigment of blue, doesn't she? Yeah, which is like, basically like, like green, screen, green screen, blue screen kind of like, you know, reality. But I think the thing that that creates, which is interesting, is that like you're walking into something and you kind of instantly are like, where will I end up? You're, you're like, sit, you know, you're going to enter like a, a virtual reality or something. Yeah. Like, and then also you, you're, you're at the, you're basically subservient to whoever chooses to take your image and put it somewhere, you know, which I think was like a really brilliant way, obviously of creating like the context that her um, twin brother was, you know, kind of in without even knowing. I mean, and he wasn't even necessarily in a, um, uh, an environment where they actually took his likeness in a legitimate way. They just created it. So uh, allegedly, there's, it's very, it bears very little resemblance to him. But the thing that was was clear was that it was his stats, his number. And I think his name was even used in the game as well. Um, yeah, and it's not just um, with these kind of... With these, like, technological, like, adjustments... It's it's not just like your image being taken, but it's what it's being made to do and how it's being played with, um, and like things like deep fakes come into yeah. that as well. Of like your image going into circulation, or like your your image being taken somewhere can then be. We're now in this like new like epoch or era where manipulation to your image is this other thing to worry about, not just like who owns your image who who, who owns. A version of you. Well, it's also like, who do you really trust in so many of these situations too, right? Like where your image can be taken and extrapolated in, in any in any way now. Um, or somebody can create a likeness of you and just call it you and then find a picture on the internet and, and deep fake it onto your face. And then that's you doing whatever it is that they want you to do. The article in Freeze, which um, sort of ties together like Emrata... Uh, and her kind of the way that her like sort of the severance of herself from her image and her loss of control of her image like ties that together with the Sandra Perry um, example and a few other examples and sort of concludes with this point which is becoming the owner rather than the owned might provide a symbolic victory for those who can afford it but any meaningful change to the prevailing image economy would first require breaking free of what Mark Fisher termed business ontology, the pervasive and fatalistic view that everything should be treated as a commercial enterprise. Extracting ourselves from such a paradigm may only be possible through a genuinely radical disinvestment in social media. The more reliant we become upon digital platforms that mediate and commodify our likeness and encourage us to do the same, the further we get from being able to conceive of identity as something more than a resource to be exploited. That really like just cuts to the core, doesn't it? Hits the nail on the head, doesn't it? Right to the bone. Um, You know, it also kind of, you know, what that makes me think of it, how devalued of how devalued music has become, where no one expects any longer to pay for music. 
it's it kind of is this devaluing of us as people as well, where we shouldn't expect to be paid for what it is that we put on the internet, you know? And I think like this kind of like platform model that is around, um, it's free because we're gonna package up all your shit and we're gonna sell it to everyone else so that you can be manipulated is, is like the root of the problem, obviously. If we, if they had to license our images from us and basically pay us for them, then we'd be in a much more kind of fair economic situation. Yeah, I think there's a real argument to somehow try and nationalize or like publicly own images and data and make these private companies like essentially have to license them off yeah, us. Yeah, like image collectives. Basically. Yeah, you basically have like a body that how you, how like a natural resource is is basically um, should be publicly owned. Yeah, I mean, you then start to get some like you know. It gets tricky. Well, you just get like these. It, yeah, in theory, should work, but you get the. You probably just get situations where big tech and these like bodies just start, you know, colluding against the public interest. But in theory, I think it should work. Like, like I think that that would definitely be a positive step. Like, it shouldn't be that the ownership, the ownership is automatically with these like big tech platforms. Yeah. Well, I think like yeah, you, basically your um, your involvement with them then um, supersedes the idea that you have any ownership of your image in the first place, which um, I think also is like how so many people have made careers for themselves, made names for themselves, um, have found ways to make money off of their likeness, but it's never from the platform itself. So you might get notoriety, you know, via Instagram and so on, but you won't, they won't be the one who writes the check. No, there's no direct monetization of them. It's, it's like, you, it's all premised on this, like getting as large as you can and then finding these like ways to plug some funding into that. My name is Tabitha Rezor. I'm a French, Danish, Guyanese video artist and new media curator. I'm here to present you today my research about Afro-Cyber Resistance. It all started when I got invited by Social Media Week in Johannesburg to curate a video screening. I put together this program of videos exploring the use of social media as a platform. The selected artists were mainly Westerner. And a friend of mine came to me and said, yeah, it's cool, but it's white art. What do you mean it's white art? Well, it's white people art. Mm, asking the question if this digital aesthetic, the internet aesthetic is global or if it is Western and then has been imported into Africa. But like as people say, there's no geographical border on the internet. Mm, but does that really not matter where you come from when you're online? Is your geographical position not relevant at all when working on the internet? Hashtag Africa Internet Art Resistance Global Cyber Culture As Ricardo Dominguez, the founder of Electronic Disturbance Theater, a group of digital activists, puts it, the internet is the wild west. Indeed, the west controls the internet in terms of domain ownership, content input and data utilization, 
while Africa remains the least visible continent on the internet. The fantasized global online culture is still mainly a one-way flow, from them to the rest of the world. Considering the global south context, we can ask ourselves if the internet is a colonized space, and if we are still victim of an hegemonic power. If so, how can culture have an impact on this social divide and misrepresentation? And can the internet still be a space for dissent? The internet is not a place of non-rights. And despite the coercive environment, it is possible to challenge the unilateral and unbalanced relationship that exists between the Western connected world and the Global South. The Cape Town-based collective Shimorenga experienced the controlling and geographically biased architecture of the Internet when trying to Africanize Wikipedia. Shimorenga are the editors of Shimorenga magazine, a pan-African publication of culture, art and politics, and other publications. They also engage in online projects, such as Shimorenga Library, an online archive of pan-African periodical, and an online platform about power, money, and sex. Engaged in cultural African history and theory, they tried multiple times to upload African content onto Wikipedia, so as to Africanize the world's most visited online encyclopedia and feel the lack of information online about the continent. Many of those new articles have been rejected. Some because, I quote, their relevance was not proved, others because the style or tone of those entries was too personal or not deemed appropriate to the world's most open internet platform, end quote. It didn't start out like that, you know? You don't think so? I mean, it didn't have to go down like this. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, for real, like, there was a period where it was like people had to, like, know how to code to use the internet. Yeah, but wasn't it invented by the American military or something? I don't, yeah, but I, don't I mean, really it wasn't controlled by, you know. I'm saying it didn't start out that way. I'm not saying it isn't now. It 100% is. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to play that clip to, like, also on the point of decolonization of, like, arts and culture. It's, like, these, again, like diversity is like one thing and we should have more diversity but to actually like decolonize culture you a need to like reimagine institutions and re like liquidate them and redistribute that yeah like that centralized power but you also need to address the internet which is like governed by western like mnc's like google and facebook yeah tabitha who was like speaking just then runs through various examples of just how like google is a colonized space and the way that google approaches like black bodies so like if you google like images of black men you'll see like hypersexualized images or if you google dreadlocks you'll see so on the one hand it's like presenting the black body in a certain way and on the other hand it's like if you google like dreadlocks you'll see lots of white people with dreadlocks um and similarly palestine is uh, palestine's also been removed from google maps which, which is like another example of like digital kind of colonization and i think that's like a thing that's we similar to like the platform capitalism stuff where like you think of your image being you you think of social media as a tool or like your image 
being neutral when you post it on Instagram. Similarly, like Google and like lots of these other, even like the concept of domains are like heavily dominated by the West and there's a, there's a sort of like order in place. But I think like that back to the institutional aspect of, you know, wanting to reimagine institutions. The internet is also an institution, you know, it has an ontology that is rooted in one very specific perspective that is uh, white male American gaze. I just, I don't think that we're too far away from like having private um, internets, you know, like in the same sense as Tor and like other things that are for servicing a very specific kind of uh, alternative to what's legal. I think we'll also have like an alternative to what kind of thought we want to be driven by, you know? And I think like in the other kind of form of, of capitalism, it's like drug dealer capitalism, you know, exists like off of crypto phones that have their own uh, ISP and have their own messaging apps that are hosted on that and exist solely in order to service the fact that it, it can't be seen. I mean, we can start thinking in that direction as a, um, you know, progressive minded alternative. One other example of institutional like hilarity over this period was did you see the Whitney cancelled their exhibition they like acquired they like acquired a load of like black artwork through like a BLM oh, fundraiser yeah. <laughs> yeah that shit was insane but that <laughs> Which is also like easily one of the funniest things <laughs> they but yeah they they ended that so quickly like they didn't even put up a fight on that right like, they, just, they just they stop? knew it was bad like <laughs> but did you they see bought the these that like they were sending out though and shit like where the emails were like congratulations you have a lifetime pass to the whitney oh and God. people were just like who the fuck wants that so like to you know like that was payment though for people to have their uh work in the show <laughs> yeah so like to to like just state what it was it was like the whitney their curator bought like the work of 80 artists like prints photographs posters I can't find the price, but I think they paid. Oh yeah, they paid like a hundred dollars each for this, <laughs> and this is for like a. The, the the intention was to sell this to like. It was like during BLM and COVID, when COVID was like new, to raise money. And it was going to be shown at the and, Whitney, right? And then and then this curator, after acquiring it, in a way that wasn't meant to be acquired for like an institution, then arranged a, an exhibition of these works because they had bought these like one-off pieces yeah um and told the artists i guess that they would have like just 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 inform them that it was happening and told them they'd have like a free entry to the show <laughs> free entry to the show into the whitney um forever and then that Lifetime. obviously just caused like some enormous storm wait i'm just looking up the um the cost of a ticket at the Whitney. 25. $25. So $25. They paid, that's a quarter of the price that they paid for one of these. I mean, that is just, it's absolutely insane. My hot take on decolonization <laughs> is that it's being colonized. As a term. <laughs> as a term it's definitely. That's, that's like that. I think that was like, I, I was like on this panel and my only point to make was that. <laughs> and so then I made it and then was like, fuck it.
no points. I'm just gonna like keep making <laughs> this I'm one done. point over and over again. <laughs> this is kind of awkward, yeah. but I managed to style it out. I think everyone appreciated that I was like, you were stuck to it, being the most radical. You dropped the mic instantly and then yeah. picked it back up and then kept saying yeah, the same thing. <laughs> I was like, you know what? The thing about any of this is that unless our institutions are decolonized, i.e., completely <laughs> destroyed, none of this makes any sense. So I, for me, like the next, the next step is like. I am starting from a number of premises in presenting these remarks to you here tonight. Uh, the first of these premises has to do with the fact that we live in an increasingly visual world. In the average American household at the present time, um, television is being viewed uh, six and a half hours a day uh, per person. And uh, as I said, this can be viewed either as a, a very positive thing or as a negative one, but in any case, it indicates that visuals are here to stay. Secondly, in terms of my premises, um, the film field, the commercial film field, is dominated by huge communication networks by huge commercial companies, in fact, conglomerates, not merely companies, corporations, um, designed uh, to create, of course, the largest possible return on their investment, as is true of all commercial business. In film, this has meant, over the years, in commercial film, Hollywood, of course, and what we mean by Hollywood. Um, it has meant that this particular medium, and speaking only of this medium, is in essence to be viewed as a business. And the best way of viewing it, and the only possible way of viewing it, is viewing it as a business. Uh, that means some people manufacture clothing and others manufacture movies. And once this very simple truth sinks in, uh, a lot of other things follow and flow from it just as easily. For example, if one sells a commodity, one wants to sell it to the largest possible number of people because that will maximize one's profits. In relation to Hollywood, this has meant that one wants to reach the largest possible market, thereby aiming the films and the level of the films at the lowest common denominator because that will get in the largest number of people. Uh, the result of that has been um, literally thousands of films over many, many years that essentially serve to reinforce a status quo that essentially are designed not to antagonize people but rather to lull them into a state of uh, happy, uh, pleased acquiescence. It means that in relation to Hollywood, we have fables, we have bland half-truths, we have questionable myths, we have violence, we have titillation, we have over oversimplification. And all of this, of course, serves and succeeds in serving the largest possible number of people. So that was famous Amos Vogel, angel of image death. Yeah, he uh, it was very foreboding and very 
um, premonitory prophetic to use some wanky words um just <laughs> taking a leaf out of your book um oh, thanks <laughs> pleasure scorsese um scorsese says if you want to get to the origins of a film culture in america you need to hang out with amos yeah you need to get deep with amos Vogel. but yeah he wrote um one of the most legendary film books which is called film as a subversive art he's like known for three things and all of them are like iconic basically like screening series cinema 16 co-founding or being the first programmer for new york film festival I think, yeah i think founder founder new york film festival and that book that you're talking about yeah which is like a somewhat of a i still haven't got a copy but somewhat of a bible for what's basically like a communist manifesto of film yeah it's, it's like uh, when you have to pay loads of money to buy the communist manifesto <laughs> yeah it's exceedingly expensive to find but the uh it's it's really is worth trying to to get a copy of maybe we can see if we can find like a pdf scan of it and then we can kind of make it available somewhere in part it's like a great list of films it's a great list of films and it just reorients everyone's perspective on what film actually is amos vogel explains it as the film experience requires total darkness the viewer must not be distracted from the bright rectangle from which huge shapes impinge on him Unlike the low-pressure television experience, during which the viewer remains aware of room environment and other people, aided by appropriately named commercial breaks, the film experience is total, isolating, hallucinatory. The viewer forgets where or who he is and is offended by stray light, street, or audience noises which destroy the anticipated, accepted illusion. So I think, like you, we were saying before, like with Cinema 16 was about a bunch of people getting together in a room to really just be hypnotized by a film. The difference between TV and film is that now you're uh, distracted. You're, you're sharing that experience with the rhythms of daily life around you. People making dinner, your telephone ringing, um, the person sitting next to you on the couch. Like that to him was what TV was. And I think what's just almost ridiculously shocking now or would be to him is the amount of distraction that we have now in between images so we've got everything intercutting what you know the content is that we're watching on our phone or what we're watching on netflix and so on and i think the concept of anxiety that comes from that um you know to use tv as a metaphor is for how moving images are are no longer cinema but now they're on phones laptops screens and everywhere else and so every every bit of that is punctuated with uh, some other distraction that comes you know in the space between an image the other part of what he was talking about as well was the the actual effect of cinema and the essence of it saying that cinema is not light but a secret compact between light and darkness Half of all the time at the movies is spent by the transfixed victims of this technological art in complete darkness. There is no image on the screen at all. In the course of a single second, 48 periods of darkness follow 48 periods of light. During the same infinitesimal period, every image is shown to the audience twice and as a still photograph, for the film comes to a dead stop in the projector 48 times in the course of a single second. Given the retina's inability to adjust quickly to differences in brightness, an illusion of movement is created by this rapid stop-start series projection of still photographs, each slightly different from the one before. So, you know, the concept of 24 frames per second, 
So as it stops and starts, there's 48 gaps that are, mm -hmm. are darkness. That would be if you were sitting in a cinema. So now we have all that darkness that's filled with messages, comments on how you look, pictures of your ex getting on with life without you, food, products you can't afford. And that is the shit storm. Yeah, just like so much noise, like a f avalanche of kind of like noise and notification and and even just like in the physical space as well. Like the thing he was describing about television being this like new environment where you're constantly being distracted by people around you and you're like talking over it and as well as the breaks with commercials that more than ever is what we're doing with our phones. It's just like the way that people use their phones while they're like doing anything and you're constantly like breaking up any kind of image with a shitload of in-situ distractions or ones on your phone. The a Vogel sort of speaks very seriously about how we are becoming, you know, and this is in 1980 and it's even more the case now, less attuned, less literate, less able to understand, to appreciate, to grasp and see. And it's like the price that we pay for the kind of reader's digest, like getting things in a digestible, easy to consume, like a snackable, superficial form, which he saw as TV, but you know, like we're experiencing in every facet, like the way that like news is, you know, condensed into like snappy, like 30 second videos or people just read headlines. And he, he like cites this problem um, as us being like robbed of literacy. And I think that's like more true today than ever before certainly more than in 1980 yeah for sure i mean i think like we're we're left to um have other people do the thinking for us in in everything now at some point and then we don't know where those nudges are coming from i mean and not in a paranoid sense to always be kind of you know bringing it back to the evils of uh technology but i think we really don't know what's behind all the algorithms nudging us in in all these disparate directions that that, you know, create these these really anxious feelings. But yeah, I guess I well the other part of that too is that the the shitstorm um, creates that acquiescence that he mentions too. You know, like we're basically left to um, be subservient to whoever speaks above this the shitstorm and makes sense in some way. I think you know Donald Trump's messaging is blunt and brutal and clear even if you don't agree with it you kind of can you know make sense of it and even if it's all lies you still know what he's saying so as everything else is chaos around you you have this this you know belligerent authoritarian shouting at you yeah and making sense of like a very complex world uh, you know, like make, making some which, <laughs> a which is, specific brand of sense. <laughs> yeah, and it, well, one that speaks to like a lot of people of a like of a working class, for example, because yeah. it, you know, it it it's like it's brash and it's ugly and it it it's like the kind of talk that you'd hear on WWE sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and not like politicians talk, and because it gives you relief from the shitstorm, basically. Yeah, it's like all the people that you kind of like on social media. I think are like. The people I like anyway are the people that seem to like rise above the noise and yeah, you know, cut the wheat from the shaft. Yeah, it's why memes are so good. Yeah, because it's <laughs> like you you kind of like rise above this like confusion, this like sea of confusion that everyone's in when they're on the internet and just hit someone with something that brings a moment of clarity. Yeah, 
I mean, and also, I mean, they get to pass around the things that he says in a, a very meme-centered uh, type of way, where it's always so shocking what he said. Can you believe he said this? And then it just gets passed on and on and on. But now that he's gone, do you think that the media will continue to report on him? Well, the other, well, so yeah, this is the the there's so in the same way that Vogel talks about how film you need to you need to think of it as like like you need to understand its profit orientation to yeah. like to get it this like to understand why certain decisions are made and why certain types of films are made the same you need to like approach the news with the same lens and this is just this is like what uh noam chomsky was like saying with his text like manufacturing consent mm-hmm. um where he talks about how like news media is like the news, the, the news media basically will only ever present a very limited, like span of the debate because news media is, like, in the same way that film and Hollywood is run by conglomerates, news media is too, and so that means they're just biased. They're, there's a bunch of biases that will affect their editorial, like the fact that they're profit oriented or who owns them, the fact they have and advertisers, who's right? Advertisers also where they get their sources from. So like journalists get their sources from government officials and there's synergy between those two things. They need to keep each other sweet. And so if you're a journalist, you know, the way that you report from a press briefing, you're, you're going to, you're going to do it with the, with the sort of contact in mind and the fact that you want future press briefings and you want proximity to the contact. Yeah. Um, and then there's also like a bunch of narratives, like it used to be the sort of anti-communism narrative and then it was the war on terror and now Donald Trump is one of them. And these like narratives are products in themselves. Yeah, um, absolutely. That, that, that the press and like the news media, you know, like, like monetize and profit from. Yeah. And so that it's it's like well documented, like what Donald Trump led to a kind of like bump, like for news media. It was it's yeah, a very sellable huge. thing, and like you know it was like the Washington Post saying democracy dies in darkness, and the New York Times like basically selling it. It went from not being able to pay like its pension contributions to like having a booming subscription business off the back of saying that in these dark times with like the rise of a fascist, yeah. you know, you need you like our kind of journalism. Our, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it also creates a privilege around reliable news as well, because all of those sources are behind a paywall and all of the right wing media is absolutely free in every direction. And there's so little value in, in, what they're creating because it's based in conspiracy theories, lies, and so on. But they spread because they're easy to send links because you don't have to get behind a paywall to read it. And that creates another problem as well. Matt Taibbi has this, he has a new book about like um, the way that media is, the way that media has been updated since like Chomsky was writing about it and just how it's kind of, it's basically the same points as Chomsky. Like there's just a very, small window in which the debate can operate within for all the reasons like pretty much like the liberal capital motive but also what he says which is interesting is that they want to like news media kind of profits best when they have audiences uh that are like in their camps like in their political camps and they're just feeding them the same sort of like ideology so you'll just have everyone separated out so like 
each of these kind of organizations are just have their audience base who have their political ideology and they're just being fed the same thing and that's and that's just like how everyone is distributed now and that's yeah. what's the most profitable um so i think that's like interesting and in just thinking about news as a business and then when you bring trump into that and you think about him as like a sellable product that drives like ratings and drives subscriptions and drives yeah. advertisers it's interesting now in a post trump you know trump's lost the election um what is that you know that he he kind of the people that hated him most kind of benefited the most from him or benefited like all these media companies yeah. who hate Trump. The spectacle of it. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. And what does that, what do they do now? Well, I mean, yeah, it would be curious to see if they continue to amplify. Him. Well, for example, The Atlantic ran that article that was like, Trump is, Trump was like a lousy, inefficient, like fascist. You know, yeah, what, who's what, next? Who's next? What we're going to have next is like someone who's actually efficient. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we were lucky with Trump. You know, what's next? And, and so they're kind of. Yeah, basically, think, that article is like saying it, it, Trump is an idiot and we were lucky to have an idiot. Exactly. Who had the fascist tendencies that he had because we could identify them for what they were. And whether that's true or not, like part of the reason that's run is to continue the specter of like Trumpism and therefore drive relevance into yeah. these news companies. If you could imagine somebody who was a bit more um, smooth and poetic in the delivery of their message over what would be classified as a shitstorm of, of chaos around us at all times, events, but also just media and uh, disparate opinions and, and everyone infighting and yelling at each other. If there was a person to come over the top of it all and just say in a soothing voice, I've got this figured out and handled and at the same time do all the exact same things that Trump has done, but spin it in a way that you um, had less people disagreeing with it, which at this, at after this election, I mean, it's even if Joe Biden had won by 5 million votes, there's still 70 million plus people who voted for Trump. And that's pretty terrifying indictment of how fucked up America is. Trumpism has definitely not gone away. No, and somebody will pick up the reins of it and then, you know, ride it, you know, further out. And But what are the, going to be the um, methods of manipulation that they'll use as they move forward, you know? And also how critical are we of what we, what we consume and what we see, whether it be media or film or uh, all the other things that, you know, we're inundated with. I wanted to just also mention this Bifo Berardi quote where he says power is no longer constructed by silencing the voices of people but instead through creating noise chaos of images and information so I mean you know all of these systems work hand in hand together and create uh, a constant clattering noise um, another part of this too, he said, modern power was based on the ability to forcibly impose one's own voice and to silence others. This now emerges from the one that speaks the loudest over the storm in inaudible voices. I think like the passivity of uh, what television created in the 70s that Amos Vogel was, was talking about, or, or images. I mean, basically the passivity of what film was, where sitting in a dark room watching a film, you were there to take in images. 
TV, you were still there to take in images, but then they were interspersed with your daily life. Now we have um, daily life and commercials and commercials, right? And so now we have um, screens everywhere. It's like that on steroids, right? And then we also like the commercials are the shopping tab on Instagram, but then also like in a million other directions as well. Um, Every time we look to see what time it is, we have a million different things to confront us with. uh, You know, all of these different disparate realities. Also, we've become mirrors for the anxieties of finance, reflections of profit and loss, and victims of images. That's really where we have to explore a way to communicate outside of these short bursts of images with music put to them that we see on our telephones. And where can we find something that is outside of that system so that we can start to really break it down and get away from it. The other side of what Amos Vogel is actually advocating for, which as he criticizes Hollywood film, he's also advocating for film that is outside of that system. And I think in that sense, he's, he's, he's dreaming and looking for more of a poetic uh, visual language that is outside of these very um, kind of crude and rudimentary mathematical equations that just equal profit for multinational companies. And that's like what he wanted to do with Cinema 16, where like he wanted to screen work by independent people often made with like little budget that wasn't made for an audience even, or like not not made to be sold at least, um, had no kind of like motive in that sense. Yeah. And I think he wanted to put things forward and say like, there's, this is, this is art. This is uh, a different way of thinking about the world. There's all this potential and possibility here when you take it outside of the context of having it need to make money. And and that was what he kind of, you know, called film by committee, which is what we're discussing with, you know, Netflix and like news Quibi by committee platform. News, by, yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, that committee is basically the the power that uh, mass audience imposes on these platforms. So if really it's a matter of how many people view things always, that doesn't give much liberty to the concept of having people make something that's a true extension of how they feel, who they are. Um, it's always about the marketability of them to the, the largest possible amount of eyeballs. So I think like that takes us to this poem that Naeem read for us. And I guess this one last Bifo Berardi quote leads into that nicely. He says, poetry is the act of language that cannot be defined, as to define means to limit. And poetry is precisely the excess that goes beyond the limits of language, which is to say beyond the limits of the world itself. Um, I have one more point I wanted to make, actually. I, I like, hate poetry. Uh, but isn't it funny, though, how we've all been conditioned to hate poetry, though? Yeah. It just sounds, it's like the corniest thing that you could ever you could ever bring into conversation <laughs> like like being into poetry <laughs> yeah it's and it's been like bastardized by brands and stuff as well and yeah. e- but even like older poetry I'm gift gaff yeah. <laughs> yeah like every every brand seems to love like having a poet but i liked yeah i liked his definition like the kind of metaphor and i thought the um there's a john carpenter film called they live have you seen it no it's like the the main character like puts on this pair of sunglasses and suddenly starts seeing everything really differently and he sees people with authority and wealth 
um, as like aliens, and they have like these like gross faces. Um, oh, I think I, I think I've seen images from this, but I've never actually seen the film. Yeah, and so then yeah. he like confronts this woman in a shop, and she like tells all her associates, and then like the alien police come, and like really quickly it you know turns into like a carpenter film where he's like shooting them, and but it's like. It's just like, yeah, there's very quickly a kind of like action that where he's like rebelling and resisting and fighting them. But it's like the sunglasses reveal this reality to him. Um, you know, that essentially him and his fellow species, the proletariat, are being like oppressed into this regime by the alien like capitalist overlords. Yeah. And it's like quite a nice parallel to potentially like poetry as an emancipatory form I think you know like thinking outside of the limits that we've been like boxed into what we've kind of been conditioned to think over the past you know 50 so years is that there's nothing valuable about uh, poetry that things are only valuable in prose or only valuable in the most efficient delivery of a message um, and that has you know trickled into film and has trickled into photography and so many other things in one of uh, Berardi's books, he said that poetry can be defined as the act of experimenting with the world by reshuffling patterns. Um, and I think that is like really what the potential of film actually is, is that when you contemplate how a bunch of images might come together in an edit timeline, you're basically creating a pattern that you um, can either make into a three-act structure or you can make in something that has nothing to do with any kind of structure like that. And so I think like that's part of rewriting this language as well as to kind of get to a place that we're um, taking rules away. This is Dance Warm by Fred Moten, read by Naeem. <laughs> Hits play. <laughs> <laughs> Garnett dance warm in my head like a sweater He says one love is Uncountable And I feel him One love Is counter to itself more than that More than that is perfectly Itself and every version We've been ourselves so differently that all this Dancing Stay ready for us to smile Having smiled You got me smiling You caught me smiling Again which no one thought it could be our warm arrangement is embarrassed with all this beautiful war inside like babies making grammarless babies.
No index and it means there's a zero, no one, no index, no one, no all.